0: Well, good morning. morning. It's so good uh, to see everybody today. Wasn't it awesome to hear our kids leading us in worship like that? You know, this is, as many say, in many regards, the most wonderful time of the year, right? But I think you would also agree that many times it's the craziest time of the year. Uh, Recently, I read about an elderly man in Phoenix who called his son in New York uh, right before Thanksgiving, and he said, I hate to ruin your day, son, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. 45 years of misery is enough. The son said, Pop, what are you talking about? And his dad responded, we just can't stand to look at each other anymore. I'm sick of her, she's sick of me, and I'm sick of talking about this, so you call your sister in Chicago. And he hung up. Well, frantically, the son calls his sister. She explodes on the phone. Like, heck, they're getting divorced, she said. I'm gonna take care of this. She hangs up, immediately calls Phoenix, screams at her father and says, you are not getting divorced. I'm calling my brother back. We'll both be there tomorrow. Don't do a thing until we get there old man hangs up the phone and he looks at his wife and he says, okay, they're coming for Thanksgiving and they're paying their way. Now, what do we do for Christmas? Well, Uh, Some of you really know this, right? The holidays can get crazy, especially if you have crazy family, right? And then there's just the crazy shopping we all have to do. There's all the activities, all the busyness, everything else. And it is so easy to get distracted from the beauty of what we really do want to celebrate at Christmas, right? Which is what God has done for us in giving us his son, Well, this December, what we're going to be doing as a faith family is we're going to slow down and we're going to do a deep dive into one of the most beautiful, one of the most profound passages in all the Bible about Jesus coming into the world. And that is found in Isaiah. It's chapter 9 and it's verses 1 through 7. And as you're getting there, let me just kind of tell you a few things. These words uh, were written over 2,700 years ago. And yet we find that Isaiah's world in many regards, was remarkably similar to ours today. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, is this prophecy about a king who comes into a world being destroyed by sin, and he comes to establish a forever kingdom of ever-increasing righteousness and peace and joy. And Isaiah reveals the name of this king as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince, of peace. Each week during December, we're going to be taking a look at one of those titles, and today we're going to be looking at Wonderful Counselor. And before we get there, I just want to kind of set some things in place for us. This is a, a very familiar passage. Uh, we we talk about it probably every every year, but I think sometimes we can skim over the surface of it without seeing its richness, without seeing its beauty. It might be that some of you hearing that it's a prophecy given 2,700 years ago are kind of wondering, what does a 2,700-year-old prophecy have to say to my life today? And the short answer is this, times and cultures may change, but people never do. We face the same temptations and trials that they did. They had to ask back then, just like we have to ask today, the most important question ever, do I know and trust the living God. And it is the question really that all of our lives turn on. Are we banking our lives on God and on God's promises or are we trusting in ourselves and in the world's empty promises? Sometimes, I think especially in a time like today, it's easy for us as followers of Christ to think that we're the first generation to face all this mess that we're facing, all the moral confusion and that we see around us, all the unbelief, all the cultural turmoil. But the truth is every generation of Jesus' followers faces this one way or another. And when you look at the Bible during times like this, God often would send prophets to warn, to encourage, to foretell the future. And the role of the prophets was to call God's people out of sinful indifference, out of their disobedience and into a true and living faith. And prophets did that over and over and over again. See, God called prophets to bring clarity into the mess that we can make of our lives in this world that we we live in. And prophets would say things like, this is who God is. And this is what God wants for you. This is the path to true life and joy. And you should pay careful attention because everything is on the line here. Everything is at stake, both for today and also for forever. Now, this is also why prophets were often called seers. Because God gave them the ability to see what is most true, what is most real, what is most satisfying. Isaiah was one of those prophets. He is considered to be one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. His book, uh, Isaiah, is actually referenced in the New Testament more times than any other Old Testament book, uh, maybe as many as 400 times. And, And one of the things that tells us, and maybe you've never thought about it, but that tells us that Jesus and the apostles were reading and studying the book of Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah lived during a very tumultuous time in the history of God's people. He he actually lived and ministered during the reigns of five different kings of Judah. This took place during the latter half of the 8th century B.C., uh, so somewhere between the years of 750 and 700 B.C. He began prophesying uh, during the reign of King Uzziah, uh, uh, who... who, um, was one of Israel's greatest kings, and he was likely killed during the reign of Manasseh. Isaiah was not a popular prophet. The the story shows that few people actually listened to him. History tells us that he was executed by being sawn in two. And right in the middle of all of this, during the reign of King Ahaz, this prophecy of Isaiah 9 takes place. For centuries, God's people had been languishing in their sinful self-reliance and, and rebellion. Their, their worship had devolved into cold rituals. Some of us know what that's like. Maybe even you today, you show up at church, and it doesn't really mean a lot. Maybe you're just here because someone expects you to be here. Maybe you're not even sure why you're here. A lot of people back then were in that place. They had godless leaders all too often. They were facing cultural and and, and political and world turmoil with with military uh, nations being arrayed against them. It was a time for those people when God and his promises seemed quiet. and, And everything that was happening in the world around seemed so much louder. A lot like today a day when we live in an increasingly divided nation with polarizing ideologies, with, with morality being redefined all around us, with the economy in upheaval, and upheaval, and have you noticed with the, the rise around our globe of adversarial nations. And I think we all kind of sense it. All is not well. All that together can feel a lot louder sometimes, than God's word and God's promises. And what I want you to understand is it was in just such a time that Isaiah promised the coming of the king of all kings, the king whose first arrival we are celebrating right now during Advent, the king whose second coming we eagerly long for and await. And and if we understand this, when we know these things and we think of these things about his coming in the past and his coming in the future. It it helps to reframe our lives. It helps to put things in perspective. It reminds us of what right now, today, seems so loud and so urgent and so important. It's not gonna last forever. And so I just wanna ask you, does your heart need help in this season? For you are the things of this world drowning out God's voice? Do you feel overwhelmed? Are you here today and the truth is you're just tired of giving in to sin and to unbelief again and again? You're tired of it and yet you find yourself returning to it over and over because you just don't know what else to do. Has your faith become superficial, maybe rote, ritualistic? Are you here today looking for a joy that will not fail? And if any of that speaks to you, then my call to you is let's walk together with Isaiah this Advent. And let's hear what God's word has to say to us. I wanna read the passage that we're gonna look at today. And then we're going to pray together. So if you will uh, give your attention to the word of the Lord, here is the word that Isaiah wrote, beginning in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people prince of peace of the greatness of his kingdom and peace there will be no end he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this this is the word of the Lord and God's people all say Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we ask you as we open your word to fill our hearts with thoughts of your glory, the one and only living God for whom one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day, the only wise God who is never threatened as empire's Rise and fall, but exists forever in holy perfection. Lord, we are only momentary living and dying, but but you exist eternally. Lord, we are finite and fading, but you are the only infinite fountain of life, and so we ask you, would you turn our hearts away from getting wrapped up in the, the trifles and uncertainties of the world? And Lord, would you draw our hearts to you, and fix our hearts on you as our all in all. Would you help us to remember that life is short? Help us to redeem the time, Lord, to go deep with you, to spread the gospel wherever we can, Father, to do as much good as we can while there is still time. In this Advent, Lord, would you help us to see Jesus In a new and fresh way, as our wonderful counselor. It is in his all satisfying, good, and precious, and beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Well, I want to set for us, before we talk about the wonderful counselor, what that means, I want to set the historical context of Isaiah 9 even some more. And and I think it's important for us to understand what's going on, to really see what we are being told. And uh, You can uh, learn more about this on your own if you want by reading maybe sometime this week, 2 Kings uh, 15 through 20. And I'm going to spend more time today uh, on context as we look at all seven verses than I will in the weeks that follow. But if you go to this section of Isaiah, if you turn back to Isaiah 6, we learn there that King Uzziah died around the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. And as I mentioned a moment ago, Uzziah had reigned for about 52 years. He was a good king, and so his death shook the nation. He was followed by his son Jotham, and he reigned 16 years. He was basically a decent king overall. And then Jotham's son Ahaz ascended to the throne. He also reigned 16 years, but the Bible tells us he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, 2 Kings 16 verse 3 says that Ahaz sacrificed one of his kids to the pagan gods that he was worshiping on the high places. All that to say, I tell you as your pastor, I just wouldn't ever think of naming one of my kids Ahaz. He was not a good guy. While Ahaz reigned, uh, the Syrian armies were on the march. And so the northern kingdom of Israel, along with Syria, formed an anti-Assyrian alliance. And they attacked the kingdom of Judah. They attacked Jerusalem, trying to force King Ahaz and his, his kingdom of Judah to join them in their alliance. Ahaz was caught in the crosshairs of this political and military turmoil. He didn't want to join Israel and Syria, but he also didn't want to fight the Assyrians. And so out of fear and out of lack of trust in Yahweh, Ahaz decides he's just gonna surrender to the Assyrians and he signs a treaty with them. He pays them tribute out of the temple treasuries, which means he gives them God's uh, resources and God's you know, treasures. He promises that he'll worship their God. He, he becomes what is called a vassal. In Isaiah seven, verse one, all the way through Isaiah 9, verse 7, which we've just read, that entire section is directed at King Ahaz. Isaiah the prophet is confronting Ahaz, and he is challenging Ahaz to give up man-made strategies and to trust Yahweh. If you read those chapters, you'll see Ahaz refuses. And so Isaiah prophesies that Judah is going to be devastated by the Assyrian Empire because of the king's lack of faith. Isaiah 8 verse 1 through 9 verse 7 is a section that contains four oracles that Isaiah received from the Lord. These oracles, if you read them, you'll see they move from darkness to increasing light. And the fourth oracle is the climax of this section. The fourth oracle is Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7, which we have just read. I want to walk back through it again so you understand what's part of what's being told here. Again, in verse 1, it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. And that's Israel. That's God's people. In the past, he, that's God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, Naphtali is north of Jerusalem. If you know the, uh, the geography, it's, it, it's by the Sea of Galilee. And it says, but he, God in the future, will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. Verse two the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And let's pause there. Isaiah is describing a, a people living in darkness. And of course, darkness throughout the Bible is a, a symbol of guilt and, and sin and judgment and death. And it is on this people of darkness that a light dawns. The Bible always describes God's presence as light. And so while these people of darkness, Isaiah says, are stumbling around in their spiritual darkness, a light appears. God, in his grace, sends light. And Isaiah says the result is this, joy sweeps over the people of darkness. Look at verse 3. You have enlarged the nation. In other words, God has multiplied the people. That's a sign of blessing and favor. You have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. And, of course, harvest back in that that day were these joyful times of the year. Probably the most joyful time of the year. Why? Because it meant they had food. It meant that they were going to live through the winter. It's this joy of safety and satisfaction. And then he says, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. He says, it's this joy that's like when the enemy is defeated. And I think when you look at this, it's easy for us to read over these words and miss what this joy means because back then, think about it, to lose against an invading force likely meant the loss of your home, the loss of your family, and especially if you were a man, the loss of your life. And so imagine the joy And the relief and the gratitude when the herald comes back and says, the battle is won, the spoil is divided among the people. Joy joy like that, Isaiah says, that's what's coming to the people of darkness. And then he speaks further of this victory the Lord is bringing in verse 4. He says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, a rod of their oppressors. He's talking about God's ultimate deliverance. Of this people of darkness from all enemies. Verse 5 says, Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. In other words, all battle gear is just going to be burned because they won't need it anymore. God will bring all war to an end. And this is what God's people have longed for, what they've been waiting for. It's what we all want, right? No more darkness no more war, no more enemies, just light, just joy, just peace. But how? How will this happen? And Isaiah says it will happen through the birth of a baby, through the coming of a child. All of this is leading up to these familiar words that we like to read at Christmas and we don't think about the context. Isaiah says it will happen through a child for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And this word given tells us that this child is a gift from God. He says the government will be on his shoulders. And so this child, this king is coming in and using this word son is an indication that he will be from the royal line of David, which is confirmed in verse 7. Isaiah continues, and he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. If you're taking notes you might want to write down this is a throne name and a throne name is a name that tells us what the new king and the new king's rule will be like this coming ruler he says can have a fourfold name and i want you to notice this is a name these are not names this is a name not names it's one person he's talking about not four he says this person will be all these things all at the same time which is spotlighting his unique identity. He will be wonderful counselor, literally a counselor of wonders. It's something supernatural. This is a highlight of, of his wisdom. He will be mighty God, which is the title for God himself. And so that means this king will not just be human, he will also be divine. He will bring the presence of God into the midst of God's people. He will be everlasting Father. Now this is not a reference to God the father, but rather to the king's fatherly mercy and compassion. Kings back then were seen as father figures. And and so calling him an everlasting father meant that this king was going to bring everlasting protection and everlasting security. And then he will be the prince of peace. He will end all war, all conflict. He will replace it with flourishing and joy he is the prince of peace because he's the source of peace and the fountain of peace everything good and whole and flourishing comes from him and then isaiah continues in verse 7 of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end and that tells us that this king is the king of all kings this king is the final king the king to end all kings his government in peace will only grow greater. It will never end. And we all long for that, right? You see, this king is not just gonna come into office for a few years, sign an executive order or two and then leave, probably leaving it a worse mess than when he got there. This king is gonna come and he's gonna bring a massive renewal of the entire cosmos. This king will defeat all evil forever in us and all throughout creation. Ray Ortland has written a commentary on Isaiah. He was one of my PhD profs uh, a very long time ago. And he says this, it's a wonderful quote. He says, "The, the empire of grace will forever expand. We will be there to enjoy his triumph, forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment when we will say, this is the limit. He can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, the finite will experience ever more the wonderfully infinite, and every new moment will be better than the last. Isaiah continues He will reign on David's throne. And over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. In other words, uh, during this time, all this turmoil, God's people had been wondering and asking, Has God failed to keep his promises to us? You ever ask that? You ever wonder about that? They were wondering, Where is this king that we're waiting for? What about our homes? What about our lands? What about our lives? Isaiah is saying here that God has not rejected his ancient promise to David to establish a forever kingdom through David's family line, which is in 2 Samuel 7. You see, this promise that we're so familiar with was spoken originally into this gloomy spiritual darkness. And in that kind of time, Isaiah prophesies the arrival of an invincible king who comes striding across the world stage. In other words, the days of unfaithful kings and presidents and dictators who plunge their people into ruin and create moral chaos and confusion and further and further darkness, that day is one day going to end forever. The king is going to come. And this king who is a child will end all wars and establish an eternal kingdom of of justice and righteousness. The darkness, Isaiah says, may be all around God's people, but this king is coming into our darkness. And how do we know this is going to happen? Isaiah ends this oracle by saying, here's how the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In other words, we're not going to make it happen. God makes it happen. God defeats his enemies. God rescues his people. God replaces darkness with light. And it can't not be so. His kingdom is coming. It is sure. It will happen. All human history is moving this way. In other words, do you see that God here is answering everything that terrifies us? from the invading Assyrians in our lives to all the the swaggering bullies that cross the stage of human history to our own very real personal darkness. Isaiah is saying the answer to all of that is a child. A child. But who is this child? Um, Some interpreters, maybe you've read this, like to think that this probably Hezekiah that Isaiah is talking about who, who becomes king after his father Ahaz. But as far as we can tell, Ahaz probably, Hezekiah had already been born uh, when this prophecy was given. But, but even if the timing worked out for all of Hezekiah's goodness, he was still a flawed uh, human king. And these titles that Isaiah gives to this king cannot apply to a mere human being. They must speak of someone who is both human and divine, and they must point to the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God in the line of David. Now, I know all of that is a lot, but I want you to try to hold all of that in your mind because it is only with this entire backdrop that we come to the New Testament and we can feel the absolute weight and shock of how Jesus' arrival is described in the Gospels. See, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, they, they, they all describe Jesus coming as the arrival of the King, this King. I'll give you just one example. You can go to Matthew's gospel in the third chapter. Uh, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. And after he spends that 40 days being tempted in the wilderness by Satan and he conquers him. I want you to listen to what comes next. How. Matthew describes the launch of of Jesus' ministry. And he could have described it any way he wanted. He had multiple Old Testament prophecies with which to frame the announcement of Jesus' arrival. But this is how Matthew does it. This is how he frames the totality of Jesus, the king, coming in his ministry. It's in Matthew 4, beginning in verse 13. This is what Matthew writes. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes our passage from Isaiah 9. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And if you get it, that ought to give you some gospel shivers right there. It's like Matthew is saying, it is on people, he's here, he's here. Because they had been waiting for 700 years waiting for this invincible king of all kings to come striding out of the desert now onto the world stage, victorious over the enemy. Matthew says to his readers, it is time. It is Jesus. Jesus has come. God has fulfilled his promise because God always keeps his promise. Jesus is. Matthew is telling his readers, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace, whose reign will never end. Jesus is the light that breaks into our darkness. And then Jesus is gonna continue in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his ascension. He's gonna continue to prove that all of that is true. That he is the invincible King, that he is Lord, our crucified, risen, reigning, and ascending, ascended Savior. And to this day, Jesus is the king and he is ruling over a people that he is creating, a new people of grace, a people who are formed by the good news of the gospel all around the world. He's been doing it now for 2,000 years. He's doing it in places just like here. It's us that Jesus is forming into his people. Do you see? And someone has said every local church It's like a little embassy of the coming kingdom that is meant to give off the aroma of that kingdom now today. And so we are the people that God is envisioning when he was promising to send his son. And I hope you are understanding that this shows that Christianity is not just a bunch of abstract ideas. It's not a religious code of how you're supposed to behave like a lot of people think. It is so much more than that. It is true truth. It is real reality, a description of what is and about what will be. And I wanna ask this question again. Do you know Jesus? And does Jesus thrill your heart? See, he has made us. He knows everything about us from the inside out. There's nothing that we have done or failed to do that will surprise him because he came for sinners like us. He came for the righteous and the unrighteous. Is that you? Then Jesus is for you. Just like we talked about at the end of Romans 8 last week, you remember? Jesus is for you if you repent and believe, if you turn to him. You know, sometimes people get confused about repentance And they think repentance is morbid introspection or, you know, beating yourself up. Repentance is when you you go around saying, I'm a terrible person, woe is me. But repentance is not self-punishment. God is not trying to make us feel bad. Repentance is actually coming to our senses. Repentance and faith is King Jesus summoning us to come out of the darkness into the light of his love, which means this. Think about it. Repentance is the greatest privilege afforded to any human being. You have the opportunity, even right now, to repent every day, to step out of darkness into light more and more. God calls you to that. It is a joy and a privilege to step closer to him. And the only thing that keeps us from doing that is our own stubbornness. The repentance is not complicated. It just hurts our pride. And so Jesus is is here, or Isaiah is here calling our attention to what is most real so that we find life in Israel's true king. That's what's at stake. So what is really being asked here is, who are you trusting in this Advent? Who are you living for? Where is your deepest hope and joy? See, I I hope and I pray that during this Advent, you will hear the call of the invincible king and his name is Jesus and you will trust him with all of your might. And the first reason you should do that Isaiah says is he is our wonderful counselor. So we're gonna take a few moments to talk about what that means. Who is this wonderful counselor? You need to know that in Isaiah's words, he's not only describing who Jesus was, but also who he is right now, also who he will always be. And it's so important that we get our understanding of who Jesus is from God's word because it's so easy for us to allow other things and other ideas about Jesus to shape how we see him instead of what God's word reveals about him. You say, what are you talking about? I don't do that. Yeah, you do. We all do. We all do it all the time. We often allow our circumstances to tell us what he must be like. You say, I don't know if I do that. Okay. Well, when you're in pain, Do you ever find yourself thinking, maybe God doesn't love me? When you're suffering, do you ever ask yourself, maybe God isn't kind. Maybe God is cruel. Maybe God has abandoned me. You ever think thoughts like that, then you're engaging in in what I'm talking about here. We all do this. We shape our ideas of him according to our circumstances. Sometimes we see him as a harsh judge in our struggle against sin. And so we feel like we're always striving to appease him and we're always coming up short. Some of us are so captivated by the world around us that we kind of find Jesus uninteresting and unsatisfying because all that other stuff out there is way more attractive to us than he is. See, it's so easy for our hearts to subtly redefine Who Jesus is, and not to take him just as God reveals him to be. And if I could sum it up, I want to say to you this we must always start with Jesus as he truly is, and then out of that, see our own lives, then out of that, see the world around us. If you want to put this in a real short form, Jesus is the default. You're not. He is the Lord, He is the King. And he is our wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Well, it means he always gives the best advice. It means he always makes the best decisions for our lives. It means he will never lead us astray. This word wonderful means beyond understanding. It was a word used when something was too wonderful for words. Isaiah says that when he comes, this king, this Messiah, would be beyond our words to describe him. He is wonderful, glorious, Magnificent, awesome. He is more awesomer than all the words that we use to say awesome. Awesome. Counselor is a word about someone who gives wisdom, someone who guides from a position of authority. It's important that you understand when we see this word today Isaiah is not saying Jesus is a therapist, okay? I'm not criticizing therapists. I'm not saying anything negative about therapists, but that's not what he's talking about here. You might write this word down. He's saying that Jesus is a strategist. Because a counselor back then was someone who was adjacent to a king and who would advise a king on what strategies to use and what tactics to employ, especially going into war. And there are some uh, translations of the Bible that translate this phrase, extraordinary strategist. It sounds kind of businessy to us, but it captures the truth. The emphasis here is on God's wisdom. Because this counselor is one who knows the right a thing to do and the right way to do it in all circumstances that we encounter. See, wisdom is not just knowledge, not just knowing things. Jesus does know all things. But then wisdom is taking that knowledge and making the best decision from that knowledge. Or you could say it like this Wisdom is the ability to make the right decisions to achieve His good purposes in the best way possible for His glory and for the greatest joy of His people. And it is by this wisdom that Jesus guides and directs all things for his glory and for our joy. Jesus is never confused. Jesus is never surprised. Jesus is never anxious. He's never unsure. He's never frustrated. He's never forced to ponder and deliberate. Hmm, what should I do this time? He never has to guess. Well, gonna have to roll the dice on this one. Jesus always Jesus only gives wonderful counsel. The depth of his wisdom is unparalleled. There is no one like him. See, as the true king, Jesus always has the best ideas, the best strategies, the best counsel. If you stop thinking about it, the the wisdom of a king makes or breaks a kingdom, right? But in this case, Jesus' unfailing wisdom means his kingdom will never fail. You know, when we think about wisdom in human terms, Solomon is the kind of the paragon of that, but Solomon was only a foreshadowing of the wisdom of Jesus, the true king. You remember when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon that story back in the Old Testament, and she saw all of Solomon's glory as a king and all of his wisdom, and the Bible says it it, it took her breath away, Solomon's wisdom. Back in the New Testament. Jesus is going to say later, something greater than Solomon is here. And that is why so many people who tried to trap Jesus in his words ended up saying, no one ever spoke like this man. His wisdom is incomparable. And isn't that who you want to follow? That's what we're being asked today. Have you noticed, like, we're drowning in opinions in our culture today. So many pundits and talking heads and experts and influencers all giving their opinions. But don't we long for true wisdom? I mean, just when you think your GPS is going to get you to that place, it takes you to the wrong place, right? One of the many reasons to trust Jesus is his wisdom is unsurpassed. His wisdom makes him in control of every situation because he always knows the beginning from the end. John 18.4 tells us that Jesus knew all that would happen to him. His wisdom made him the the master of every conversation. Matthew 22.46 says no one was able to answer him a word nor did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Jesus never made a poor decision because Jesus knew every hidden thought. Matthew 9 4 said, Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? See, our lives are filled with so many questions. Jesus has all the answers. He's a wonderful counselor. There are no facts he doesn't know, no problems he cannot solve, no events he cannot explain, no messes he cannot untangle. He is never wrong about anything. He's a wonderful counselor. Do you ever stop to think that it is his wisdom that enables him to make all things work together for our good, like we talked about with Romans 8.28 a couple weeks ago? He can do that because he's all wise, this is why Paul says in Colossians 2, 3, that Jesus, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in his wisdom, he knows God perfectly because he is God, which is what the next title makes clear, which we're going to study and look at next Sunday. See, we live, I don't know if you've thought about this, but we live in this world where knowledge is increasing with ever greater velocities, perpetually and exponentially growing, but only God knows all things. Only God is eternally wise in himself. All human knowledge and wisdom, it's like a drop of rain compared to the infinite ocean of God's wisdom. All the greatest human scholarship is like a small, obscure footnote in the endless library of God's wisdom. All the greatest human scientific discoveries, because you know we're all supposed to follow the science, right? All those great discoveries are like a solitary crane of sand on the endless beach of God's wisdom. That's why King David said in Psalm 139, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. So how does this apply to our lives? Oh, there are so many ways. Only have time for five applications today, so get ready to write them down. How should this wonderful counselor change our lives? First, Jesus as our wonderful counselor means we can trust him totally. Do you trust him? Without a doubt, without question, do you trust him? His wisdom means he is the very best object of our confidence. There is no one like him. Therefore, there is no reason to doubt him ever about anything. Now, we doubt. I doubt. Of course, we we do this because of our fallenness. But we should daily be reminding ourselves that Jesus is managing the whole cosmos. And he's managing all of our circumstances. And he's doing it to bring about his good purposes, which is our best. And being infinitely wise, he always knows what he is doing in your life. You ever wonder if God knows what he's doing? In fact, I think we should raise hands right now just to get a little confession going in the moment. How many of you sometimes think God doesn't know what he's doing? Would you raise your hand? Everybody a truthful person in the room right now. Ah, oh, man, not too many. We're gonna have to work on that. <laughs> We all wonder that sometimes. But Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, says that's not true, even when it feels like it. We can always trust him. We often can't see what he's doing, but he always can. He always has perfectly wise reasons for doing whatever he does. And here's the truth. We will see what he's doing one day in the future. And if not in this life, then we will see it in eternity. And when we see it, we will agree with him. And that means that today, right now, knowing that will come today, you can trust him totally because he is all wise. He is our wonderful counselor. Second, Jesus as our wonderful counselor means we can obey his word fully. Do you understand that this book which you hold in your hands was inspired by infinite wisdom. Let's think about that. God's wisdom inspired the scriptures for our good. See, the Bible is not a, like a random collection of human advice or conjecture or, you know, ancient life hacks. It is much more than that. It, it flows from the deep, unsearchable wealth of infinite divine wisdom. It is always right. It will never lead you astray. It is meant for your good. So why would we doubt whether or not Jesus knows what is best for us? I'll give you a couple of examples just to let you ponder them. You can have a lot of examples of this. But here's the first one. Why would we refuse to forgive other people? when jesus tells us it's the best way to live that it is infinitely better than living in resentment and yet we don't obey his word fully because we don't think he knows what he's telling us to do see a question here is does jesus know what he's talking about I'm going to give you another one. And I'm just going to tell you ahead of time, this one's going to make some of you mad. Okay, so just get ready, buckle your seatbelts. Why would so many of us refuse to give, refuse to live generously? Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I just want to ask you, do you think Jesus knows what he's talking about? See, here's the thing. You can say yes in church, but if you don't live a generous life, you don't believe Jesus knows what he's talking about. Are you tracking with me here? Does Jesus know the best way to live? You see, when we are confident in him as our wonderful counselor, we will obey his word fully. Number three, Jesus as our wonderful counselor means we should pray in humility And I just want to say, this should be one of your most frequent prayers. I know it's one of mine. It's a real simple prayer. Maybe you've already prayed it today. Lord, give me wisdom. You can always ask that prayer, and he always answers that prayer. And it's so important because we are easily confused, but he is not. We are so often short-sighted, but he sees into eternity and I just have to ask, why is it that we so often end up taking life counsel from political pundits and lifestyle gurus and social media influencers? Some of us listen to the counsel of people like these far more than we listen to the infinite wisdom of our divine, wonderful counselor. We need to pray for wisdom and humility. Number four, uh, Jesus, as our wonderful counselor, should move us to repent more deeply. Whenever we see that we have not followed his wisdom, he offers us in his grace this opportunity to turn back to him. And so anytime we go our own way, anytime we go against his wisdom, we can come back, we can repent. Number five, Jesus as our wonderful counselor, that should move us to worship fervently. Trust totally, obey his word fully pray in humility, repent more deeply, and worship reverently. I wish we had more time to talk about the wisdom of our wonderful counselor. He is so wise. He is so good. He is so full of grace. He is so rich in mercy. His love for us never ends, and he offers us he offers us his wisdom he offers us his counsel will you receive this counsel's south winds <laughs> will you worship the king this advent he alone is worthy of our highest love and our deepest trust you know every generation just like just like Isaiah's generation every generation is forced to decide whether or not to trust the true and living God or to trust in their own man-made strategies like Ahaz did. See, they went before us and many of them made the wrong decisions and it's our turn now and we have made the wrong decisions sometimes but we can learn from their mistakes and we can learn from our mistakes. And so I just want to call to you Will you fix your hearts on Jesus? Will you treasure him as our invincible king, as our wonderful counselor who has come and who is coming one day again? See, as as the apostle Paul said to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we we love you and we need you. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable your judgments, how inscrutable your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? For from you, God, and to you and through you are all things forevermore. Or we ask you to forgive us for those times we presume to play the role of counselor to you rather than submitting to your counsel. Lord, speak to our hearts even now. You, you know the things that each of us needs to hear from you in this moment where we need to trust you more completely and obey your word more fully and pray. Lord, in humility and repent and worship during this advent season would you move among us as only you can move now lord to save sinners and to sanctify your people we ask all of these things in the name of our wonderful counselor and all god's people said